Hello, and welcome to the Murder and Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Summer. Today, I have a couple of stories for you about murders that have occurred during the Memorial Day weekend. I included two because they're both fairly short, but nonetheless, very shocking and disturbing. So we're going to start with Stephanie Hill from Lubbock, Texas. Stephanie was a 19-year-old Texas Tech student. She was living in Lubbock. Uh, She was a good student and planned to graduate in 2001 at the age of 20. She was talking about continuing her education and becoming a family and child therapist She, by all accounts, was a very helpful and sweet and caring person. She was an active member of the Indiana Avenue Baptist Church, which she attended very regularly. And her family described her as intelligent, ambitious, and liked by everyone. Stephanie worked at the Outback Steakhouse just a normal college student. She did normal college student things. She lived with her best friend, Heather Rosengrantz. She was generally surrounded by good friends. She never got in trouble. She didn't really party. She didn't really date. She just liked to spend time with friends. She worked, she did her schoolwork was just your typical 19-year-old college student. On Memorial Day weekend in 2000, the spring semester had just ended, and she opted to stay in Lubbock rather than returning to her family home. Her best friend and roommate, Heather, decided to go home to Dallas that weekend, and so she left Stephanie alone. This was actually pretty unusual On May 29th, 2000, Stephanie ended her shift at the Outback and clocked out about 12.15 a.m. She went home to her apartment where, again, she was staying alone. And Heather, her roommate, later stressed to police how unusual this was because usually Heather was home at this time. And so you know, Stephanie wouldn't be going home to an empty apartment. And they would often have friends over so that neither one of them were staying alone in the apartment. There was usually uh, at least one other person there. They often hung out with other people. So even at that late hour, there would be, you know, one other person there. There was always people in their apartment. So Stephanie was never alone in the apartment. So this was highly unusual for her to go home and be alone. Less than an hour after she got home at 12.50 a.m., a neighbor called 911 reporting smoke coming from Stephanie's apartment. When the fire department arrived, they found her front door ajar and there was no resident outside There was nobody answering when they were calling into 
the apartment, it was like the apartment was just empty and abandoned and there was smoke coming out of it. So they went into the apartment and quickly put out the small fire, but they found Stephanie's lifeless body laying in, on the floor inside a circle of fire. There was no sign of forced entry and there were no fingerprints found. There was no evidence. But the autopsy would later reveal that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. It appeared that the fire had been set to destroy any evidence that may have been left, like on the body or in the area where she was killed. Witnesses that had been awake at that time and maybe outside the apartment or looking outside the window around that time said that they saw a man walking away from the area where Stephanie's apartment was located around the time of the fire. And they described him as being a white male, about six feet tall, around 200 pounds, wearing a baseball cap, a blue shirt, and khaki shorts. Unfortunately, to this day, police still have not identified this person that was in that area. Uh, nobody has come forward and said that they had been there. Nobody was able to positively identify this man. And since Stephanie had never had any serious boyfriends, wasn't dating anybody at the time, really didn't date much at all, there wasn't anybody that they could find that matched that description that might have been in the area at the time. So police reports did indicate that both Stephanie and Heather were being stopped in the months before Stephanie's murder. Uh, and one month prior to her murder, Stephanie's car window had been smashed. So there was something going on. There was somebody out there that was watching her that was, I don't know if they liked her, if they were wanting to get close to her, didn't know how, and this was how they were doing it, but somebody was stalking them. Heather told reporters after her friend's murder that it had to be somebody they knew. This had to be somebody who knew their schedules, who knew where they would be and when, because they knew when Stephanie would be getting off work. They were ready for her because there was no forced entry. It was almost like they met her at the door as she opened her door and forced her in. There, they knew that Heather was going out of town. They knew that Stephanie would be at home alone, so she would be more vulnerable at that time. And at this point, it's been 21 years since Stephanie Hill's murder, and police still don't have any leads or suspects. Officers say that they are continuing to work this case. It's not just in the cold case files and they aren't touching it. They continue to send evidence out to be tested in the hopes that new technology will pick up on some small bit of evidence that couldn't be detected before. They're not giving up hope. They hoped that someday they can get justice for Stephanie. So that is the murder of Stephanie Hill.
in Lubbock, Texas. So if anybody has any information on that, please get a hold of police in that area and give them anything because any small amount of information might point them in the right direction. The second case I have for you is also a very disturbing case. It is the murder of Emily Noble. Now, Emily Noble was described by friends and family as feisty, free-spirited, and beautiful soul. She'd worked at a Medicaid office for over a decade, so she enjoyed helping other people. And she was just a loving and caring person. Emily had married her first husband, Mark, and was very much in love with him. She had described him as being the love of her life. But in 2011, Mark died by suicide. And Emily was completely devastated. It took years for her to be ready to move on. But with the support of her friends and family and the encouragement of her friends and family, she finally decided to create a dating profile and she got on the dating website Plenty of Fish. And this is where she met Matthew Moore. So Matthew, who went by Matt, was originally from Las Vegas. He had been married to Lisa, his ex-wife, whom he had married in 2000, and they had two children. One of their children, their youngest, had died in early childhood from unknown causes, but he had an older child, Joey. In 2001, while Lisa was pregnant with Joey, she had called the police to report that Matt was choking her and making threats against her life. This later was dropped. They stayed together for a while, but they divorced in 2006. After meeting Emily, Matt moved to Westerville, Ohio, where Emily lived, along with his teenage son, Joey. They married in 2018, so shortly after Matt met Emily, they met on the dating site. He moved to Ohio, they got married, and he and his son Joey moved into Emily's condo, which had been left to her by her mother. Emily's family said that Emily adored Joey and treated him like her own son. She just absolutely loved him. But the family did have concerns about Matt. They never really understood that relationship. They were such different people but there was also a lot of red flags with Matt. They said that Matt spoke to Emily in a demeaning manner and he asserted his dominance over her. He isolated her from her family and friends and was very possessive of her. When Matt moved into the condo that Emily had been living in for years, he made her take down all of her nature photographs that she had taken and framed this was her hobby, and these were beautiful pictures that she had loved and had framed herself and had put up because she loved these photos, and he made her take them down. 
He also insisted on wearing Emily's deceased husband's wedding ring. Matt didn't work and he did not contribute to the household. He didn't help with household chores and he expected Emily to be responsible for his son. Uh, he had a my way or the highway mindset when it came to his home and his family. And this is all according to her family and friends. In the summer of 2019, well, in 2019, sorry, in 2019, Joey began to have some problems at school. He started and then he started to have some behavioral issues. At this time, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Matt refused to get help for his son and he stated that he did not believe in doctors so he didn't want psychiatric help he didn't want any type of mental help mental health help for his son with schizophrenia and so joey continued to struggle and his mental health declined with this at one point shortly after this diagnosis while he was out drinking with his friends matt told a friend that he wanted Emily to adopt a baby girl from Ethiopia because the kid I got is beyond help and he was done with Joey. So not long after that, in the summer of 2009, while Emily went out of town for a little bit, and remember Joey was his mental health was declining he was not in a very good state and if anybody knows anything about schizophrenia when it's left untreated it can get really bad very quickly and so Emily goes out of town he's left with his father who's refusing to get him treatment who's saying I'm done with you I want nothing more to do with you, you know you are defective she returns from her trip and Matt tells her that Joey is gone. During her time out of town, Matt had been found hanging from a tree at a local park. He was only 17 years old. And this was ruled a suicide. So once again, Emily was devastated by the loss of someone she loved by their own hand. She had lost another person to suicide and that had to be so hard for her so on the evening of may 24th 2020 not even a year after the loss of matt emily noble and or the loss of joey i'm sorry emily noble and her husband matthew moore went out onto the on the town to celebrate Emily's 52nd birthday with her family. They went to several restaurants and bars and just had a really fun evening and eventually left their family and friends and returned to their home where Matt said they went to bed. Matt later told police that he woke up at some point during the night to go to the bathroom and not wanting to wake Emily, he went into the guest room to sleep. 
the rest of the night. Now, a friend later pointed out how odd that was, and I want to point out how odd that is because, you know, my husband and I get up and down during the night and go to the bathroom and come back, and if we disturb the other, it's only for a few minutes, and you turn back over and go back to sleep. So I don't know why that would be such a big deal if she woke up and then turned back over and went to sleep. But he didn't want to disturb her, so apparently he went to the guest room where he slept the rest of the night and woke up around 10 a.m. the next morning on May 25th where he says that he could not find Emily anywhere in the house. She wasn't in her bedroom, their bedroom. She wasn't anywhere else in the house. Her phone, wallet, and keys were still in the house. Her car was in the driveway but she was nowhere to be found. So it sounds like he looked for her a little bit and finally he reported her missing. He reports her missing and when the police come and interview Matt about his missing wife, he tells them that she may have gone off with the Amish people or she may have been kidnapped, which was very strange but these aren't the only odd things that Matt says during the course of searching for his wife. In June um, a month after Emily went missing he went on the Vanished podcast to raise awareness of his wife's case. On this podcast he made some very strange comments. Uh, When asked to describe his wife, Matt stated, I never saw her get on a scale. She was very small, like 100 pounds. She was very, very, very thin. Not like druggy thin. He also stated she had very healthy arms, shoulders, stands perfectly erect. Another description he gave was that She's anatomically a really pretty lady. However, he also stated, when she's not smiling, she'll have a look on her face that's very like there's something wrong. It's just how she is. I mean, I wonder if that, you know, like something's wrong could have to do with the fact that his son died less than a year ago by suicide and she really loved his son. I mean, losing somebody that you love can be really hard. And then especially when he died by suicide, her first husband died by suicide, that can be a really tough thing to handle. And so, of course, she's going to be having a difficult time. During this podcast, he stated that his wife went missing on Labor Day when it was actually Memorial Day. Now, I know those two are easy to get mixed up sometimes, and, you know, people might mix those up, but I would think when your wife is missing, that day would be burned in your mind. That's not something you would mix up, but he was just getting a lot of things wrong. He was mixing things up. He wasn't telling them the same story that he had told the police. It was just a lot of strange things. Now, after Emily had gone missing, starting the day she went missing, 
there were several searches in Western, the Westerville area for her, but no one could find any trace of her. During the days and weeks that followed Emily's disappearance, hundreds of volunteers conducted search parties and canvassed neighborhoods. However, Matt didn't really take part in these searches. He was not very active in these. Sometimes he would pass out flyers. He would dodge interviews with the police. He didn't really want to talk to people about it. He, he just wasn't very involved. And this concerned her family and her friends. After months of searching for her and not finding anything, on September 16, 2020, four months after she was reported missing, a 911 call was received reporting a woman hanging from a rope in a wooded area near Emily's home. This was a little ways down the road. It was off the beaded path in the woods and the body was very badly decomposed, but it was identified as Emily Noble through dental records. Because of the bad shape of the body, they did a skeletal and strangulation analysis to try and determine, you know, the cause of death. They didn't want to just automatically rule it a suicide. And what they found were multiple fractures on Emily's face and neck. There was also a USB cord found wrapped around Emily's neck. The autopsy showed that she had also been strangled as well as beaten. Because of these injuries that were not consistent with her going out in the woods on her own, with a rope and hanging herself from a tree. The medical examiner and police determined that Emily had been murdered and her body staged to appear as though it were a suicide. On June 17th, 2021, Matt was arrested and charged with two counts of murder and one count of felonious assault and he's currently being held on a $2.5 million bond and he's pleading not guilty. He says that he's innocent and he didn't do anything. Since Matt's arrest, Joey's death is also being re-examined. Because you remember, Joey, his 17-year-old son, was found hanging by a tree, on a tree in a park. Lisa Peterson, Matt's ex-wife, stated that she and Matt had never lost touch after their divorce. They stayed in contact, and despite the domestic violence they'd had early in their relationship when she was pregnant with Joey, they had more ups than downs when they were together. So she had continued to have a friendly relationship with him, which they did have a son together, And, you know, when you co-parent, you have to have a friendly relationship regardless of what happens with your romantic relationship. Lisa spoke with Matt numerous times after Emily went missing. Uh, She said that she did find it odd that the media was reporting that Matt 
Matt was not active in the search efforts when he would tell her otherwise, but she honestly thought that they were reporting it wrong because he was telling her how active he was in the search and she didn't want to believe that he had anything to do with this. It wasn't until Emily was found and the details of her death were released that Lisa even started thinking that there could possibly be any type of guilt that Matt had. But now she states that she finds it too coincidental that Emily's murder would be staged exactly like the death of her son by a stranger. So she kind of thinks that Matt may have more to do with Emily's disappearance and murder than he's letting on. At this point, I found that his trial had been postponed to February 2022, but I've not been able to find any more information on his trial uh, other than he has pled not guilty and he is being held on bond. His son's death is still considered a suicide, but they are actively looking into that. And this is the story of the murder of Emily Noble. So thank you for listening to these two stories. Until next time, bye.